evidence and answers. Not long ago, a Christian approached me very concerned because he was at an apologetics conference at another church that was criticizing our apologetics conference and our speakers. He was surprised to learn that there are different schools and approaches to how Christians do apologetics. What are the different schools of apologetics, and why do they disagree with one another? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zugren. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat and his guest, Dr. Richard Howe, will be explaining the difference between classical and presuppositional apologetics, here with part two of this interview. Any normal person, I mean, you know, obviously they're blind, they can't see, but I mean, just the way we're normally created, those were the means by which arguments and evidence was accumulated and built to leverage the, the case for the Christian faith. Now, there are some who will say, well, you can't reason anybody into the kingdom. Man is so fallen in his sin and rebellion, distorted in his thinking, and, and you can't reason anyone into the kingdom. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, this is a very important point. I'm glad you, you asked that because I think it's it's a straw man in the sense that it's an accusation they make against the classical model when the classical model never said that we could reason people into the kingdom. And so what it highlights is a, an important truth about the how we stand before God. It's one thing for me to be able to see that the sun is shining even if I'm an atheist. It's another thing, though, to take that shining sun as a evidence that there's a God with whom I have to do and that I need to bow before and worship. So the first one is just more or less a normal faculty of seeing. The second one, though, is a moral faculty that has to do with whether we are or are not in rebellion against God. So I think sometimes in the debate between the classical and the presuppositionalist, the presuppositionalist unwittingly blurs and confuses those two. The Bible clearly talks about how man is in rebellion against the truths of God, but it doesn't follow from that that I'm in rebellion such that I can't tell the sun is shining. So I agree 100%. You cannot reason people. It's like the old cliche. It's almost hackneyed because we've heard it so much. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And I think that's what that is all about. Namely, we can bring people to the truths of the gospel by argument and reason, both from, you know, apologetics, but also from scriptural revelation. Here's what God's claims on your life are. We can do what we can to bring them to that by God's grace. But then what they do with that is between them and God through the Holy Spirit. And that's not even an apologetic task. There's no, we can't touch people's hearts and spirits. We can just be used of God as instruments to bring them to there. And in, in that respect, it's very much like evangelism. I think any evangelist worth his salt would say, look, all I can do is preach the gospel and persuade, but whether people respond to the gospel is not up to the evangelist, as long as he doesn't make any, create impediments. But I'm saying, in principle, it's not up to the evangelist whether people get saved. So it's really not up to the apologist what people do with the arguments. Our task is just to present those arguments as cogently as we can. Yes, there are several uh, good friends of mine in the classical camp that state that uh, you need reason even before the gospel, because you need to be able to comprehend the gospel and understand well there is a god i am a sinner he is holy i'm unable to 
work my way and work off my sin on my own. And so would you agree with that, that you even need reason before the gospel? Absolutely. You would have to know there's a difference between there is a God and there is no God. You would have to know the difference between Jesus did die for your sins and Jesus didn't die for your sins. All of those are principles of logic that are part and parcel of what reason is. Augustine even said once that uh, before we can believe a message, we've got to be able to understand that it is something to be believed in the first place. And I think this brings up another thing that often gets uh, confused in, in, by the presuppositionalists, and that's a proper understanding of how faith and reason relate. So classically in the church, reason would be when we believe something because we've seen it demonstrated to us, whether it's a mathematical proof or a scientific proof or historical proof or whatever the demonstration looks like. If we believe something because we've seen the demonstration of it or we've experienced it ourselves, that's one thing. But faith then classically has been taking things on the basis of authority. So there may be complex scientific conclusions that I wouldn't have any capacity to understand the demonstration. I have to decide whether I'm going to, quote unquote, trust the scientist who tells me what the speed of light is, let's say. But reason has to judge whether an authority is a competent authority. You don't just believe anybody, no matter what they say, without reason telling you there's somebody to be believed. So when we bring a Bible to someone and try to preach from the Bible, the lost man at that point doesn't know the difference between a Bible and a Quran, for example, or a Book of Mormon or anything else. In his mind, okay, these are just a lot of books are all vying for my attention. How can I judge between them? And the apologists is one say, here's how we know the Bible is actually God's book. This is how we know that. And this is how it's different from the Quran or from the Book of Mormon or any other of these so-called sacred books out there. So there, there's this got to be this certain relationship between faith and reason. And then even when it comes to faith, reason has to be first to judge the viability of competent authorities. Yes, you bring up a great example there. You know, I often use the one of uh, if someone comes up to me and says, Pat, what car should I buy? And if I tell you Toyota, your first reaction would be, well, why? And you're going to look at my evidence. If I say, well, I like the name. It makes me feel good. You'll kind of be like, oh, I'm not sure, you know, but if, <laughs> if I have good evidence, if I say, well, I've got a few mechanic friends, and they recommend Toyota, Car and Driver magazines in the top ten, blah, blah, so we actually put the two together all the time. Absolutely, absolutely we do. And the presuppositionalist objects because they think somehow for the human being to judge, to try to come to the conclusion that God is a competent authority who wrote the Bible, they think that's an insult to God somehow. No, no, no. If you think you can, you're putting yourself in a judgment seat over God. And I go, no, you're confusing something here. And this is an illustration I heard from one of my heroes in the apologetics world is J.P. Moreland. He said, well, consider the difference between trying to read a map to get to, now I live in the Atlanta area. So somebody's trying to drive, they're, they're on the mainland, they're trying to drive to, to Atlanta. So they need a map to get to Atlanta. Well, notice the relationship between the map and the city of Atlanta. It may be the case that a person would need a map to know how to get to Atlanta, but there would have to actually be an Atlanta before there could be a map. So what that illustrates is that in terms of the process of knowing, I may need a map prior to me finding Atlanta. In the order of being or existence, there has to be Atlanta before there could be a map. So the classical model just says, look, apologetics is like directing people to maps. It's not an insult to Atlanta 
for somebody to say, I can't believe you have such an inferior view of Atlanta that you would consult the map before you went straight to the city. You go, that doesn't make any sense. That It's not an insult to it, the city of Atlanta that I had to know the map before I could know Atlanta, so to speak. So it's not an insult to God to say that I know the physical world around me before I came to understand who God was and what his claims on my life was through what he did for us and his son, Jesus Christ. So I think that's an important distinction to, to sustain there in the conversation. Yeah, so a classical apologist would, you know, that's how he would approach an unbeliever. Well, how would a presuppositionalist approach an unbeliever? Let's say an atheist. Okay, now this is where it gets very telling, if not interesting. My charge against presuppositionalists is that when it actually comes down to the nuts and bolts of confronting unbelief, they invariably end up doing something very similar to what the classical model has been doing all along. So despite all their protestations that our approach is a compromise and it's autonomous human reason and it's an insult to God, when it gets down to it, you can go on YouTube and listen to presuppositionalists. They start trying to do things like this. They say, well, if you're a naturalist, a materialist, like a scientist, you think everything's just physical, how can you account for the laws of logic? Or how can you account for principles of morality or things like that? Well, those are great apologetic questions. And teeing those questions up to challenge, let's say in this case an atheist, is exactly what the classical model excels at. So it strikes me as sort of odd, if not sometimes frustrating, that I've never seen a presuppositionalist in an apologetic situation. And and I'm talking about people like Greg Bonson and his debate with Gordon Stein or his debate with George Smith or Saiten Bruggenkate in his debates with various atheists that he has. For some reason, they're not noticing that the very procedure they've undertaken when they actually engage the atheist ends up, in effect, doing what the classical model was already doing, trying to argue from certain facts, logic, morality, whatever, and showing that only God can account for these facts. But see, interestingly, they knew the logic first, even though they were atheists, and they knew certain things were right and wrong, even though they were atheists. Well, that's basically telling us things from Romans 1 and 2, that the works of the law are written on the heart and the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen. So we work from those things that are, in effect, undeniable and try to, again, build the case to show that the only way that you can account for these is what we now recognize as Christianity. Yeah, you bring up a good point. You know, the presuppositionalists I talk to, they'll say the first thing they'll do is to attack the person's belief system or their presuppositions and show them that their particular beliefs are contradictory and inconsistent. That's where they say they would start. Yes. Well, and I don't really have a problem with that. That's exactly what all classical apologetics I've ever studied has always been doing. So it just strikes me as odd that when, again, as I said, when it comes down to the practical engagement, they end up only able to borrow from what the classicalist model is doing to do their presuppositionalism. In personal dialogue, I try to get them to see this, but so far I haven't been real successful in getting them to to recognize what's going on there. Yeah, because it requires reason, you know, to show that that person's belief system, you know, is inconsistent. Exactly. You know, there's another subtle thing here, if I may, that they confuse, I think, and that's the issue of the question of whether there needed to be God in order for there to be things like logic or morality versus whether I need to presuppose 
that there's a God in order for me to use logic and morality. And I think they're confusing. It would be like saying uh, it's the difference between there would have to be oxygen in the air for us to breathe. But I don't necessarily have to presuppose that there is oxygen in the air. I may not even know what oxygen is, but I could still breathe because of the reality of oxygen. So the classical model is just saying we're, we're trying to keep those distinct in terms of how the argument is framed. Clearly, there has to be a God before there could be objective morality and laws of logic or whatever. But it doesn't follow from that that the lost man has to presuppose that God in order for him to know logic and morality and other things. So the things he can't deny, like logic and morality and other things, are the very fodder out of which the classical arguments for God's existence are constructed. Yeah, now tell me if I got this right. Now what they say is that from after you show them their system is inconsistent, the next step is to show you my system, my theological system basically is consistent. But in order for me to demonstrate the truth of my system, you have to accept my presuppositions now and look through my glasses. You have to presuppose God exists or the triune God and that the Bible is God's word. And once you look through those lenses, you can see that my position is true because it's the most consistent. Yes, and so very early on when this became more of a point of contention between apologists, and, and I think what really pushed it on a lot of people's radar screen is when you had an R.C. Sproul rise up through the ranks of contemporary American Presbyterian Reformed theology because for, since the 20s, pretty much, American Presbyterian Reformed apologetics has pretty much been this Vantillian approach, the presuppositionalism out of Westminster Seminary. But Sproul didn't go to Westminster Seminary. He, he went to Pittsburgh Seminary and studied under John Gerstner, who was a classical apologist. So Sproul kind of forced this issue with his fellow reform thinkers between the classical and the presuppositional. So one of the things that came out of that, these early contentions and debates like Sproul-Bonson debate in the 70s, one of the things that came out from that was the accusation that Sproul made was that they're arguing in a circle because it's seemingly circular argument to say, well, if you start with the truth of the Christian faith, the Trinitarian God of the 66 books of the Protestant Reformed Bible, however they, much they want to qualify. If you start with that, then can't you see how true it is? Well, yeah, if I grant it to be true, of course it's going to be true. I mean, that's just a circular argument. Well, the presuppositionalist response over the decades has been, but really all reasoning is circular. Right. You know, so ours is a sort of maybe not a fatal kind of circularity the way the lost man. I just think that's patently false. It's not true that all reasoning is circular. In fact, it's interesting you and I are having this conversation now because I'm trying to finish up a blog that I'll post. I, I blog about every other Haley's Comet, basically. That's how often I blog. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm trying to get the final touches on this, and I'm dealing with that very issue to show how it is and why it is that it isn't true that all reasoning is circular. And it may be something more afield than what we want to get into here in our conversation, but I just flat deny that's even the case. They think everybody's is, so it's not an indictment on them that theirs is. I deny the charges personally as a classical apologist. Yeah, explain that a little more to us. I know John Frame takes quite a while in his book to defend circular reasoning. You know, what is that and why is that not a valid form of an argument? So circular reasoning basically is when you try to argue for a conclusion 
but the conclusion you're trying to argue for is actually part of your argument for your conclusion. So it's the old joke that people may have heard where he said, hey, do you, my friend Bob told me that he talks with angels. And he says, well, how do you know that that's true? He said, well, he told me that he did. He said, well, why would you believe him when he told you he talked with angels? And he goes, well, would somebody that talked to angels lie? <laughs> and you go, well, wait a minute. You're using the fact that he talks to angels as a way of proving that he talks to angels. And it's an illicit form of reasoning called circular reasoning. The reason why I think they can't see that that's not what's going on is because they invariably mistakenly describe human knowing in the ultimate categories of things like beliefs are propositions. And I go, well, I certainly have beliefs and I certainly talk in propositions. The sun is shining or whatever, but that's not what starts my knowledge as a knower, as a human knower. The first thing that I encounter is the external physical world. Well, that's not a proposition. Propositions are about things. I can make a statement about the sun, but a statement about the sun is not the same as the sun. So when I walk out and see the sun shining, that's not a proposition I'm encountering. It's actual physical reality. So that's why the classical model isn't circular because we would say, yeah, we don't start with assumptions or presuppositions or beliefs or properties or propositions. In a number of different ways philosophers may describe it. That's not where we say knowledge begins. It begins in an encounter between the knower and the thing known, actual things in reality like rocks and people and clouds and trees and laptops and computers and and uh, radio talk show hosts and things like that. So our, our model isn't circular, whereas theirs is because they think, well, everybody starts with a presupposition. And so here's our presupposition, and it does a better job than anybody else's, so therefore it must be the one to go with. And I go, I don't start with presuppositions. I start with an encounter with uh, the external objective reality. And so it seems like they change, you know, the, you know, makes consistency the measure of truth rather than the correspondence view of truth. That's a very interesting way to say it, I think, because I think you're hitting the nail right on the head. They, in effect, would regard knowledge and truth as the individual human thinking in a finite way the same thing God is thinking or saying. And so this is Van Til's mistaken definition of what analogy is. Analogy is this really thick term in in philosophy from the Middle Ages onward that people like Thomas Aquinas would talk about. Well, Van Til basically just redefines it, and it says, well, when we know things, what we are doing is just thinking what God's thinking, sort of in a, in a microcosm, of because they don't think we're all infinite and omniscient. And I go, that's more like this coherence kind of thing, where if what I think comports with what God thinks, then we just call that true. Rather than, well, no, both what, what we think and by analogy what God thinks are true because that's the way reality is, his being as God and then the way he's made creation. So when I think in correspondence to what God is, is really or what his creation is really, that correspondence is really what one ought to mean by true. And I think you're right. They seem to fall short on a robust and thick enough definition of what true is. Yeah. Now, one of the things they seem to get uh, upset about is that presuppositionalists will say, well, you classical apologists argue that belief in God is reasonable. 
that the Bible, there's reasonable, there's a lot of evidence to show that we have good reason to believe the Bible is true. We have good reason to believe in the resurrection. And they said, you're arguing that Christianity is reasonable. And right. They, you're right. And they're saying, no, you, if you believe something is true, you need to start with the premise that it is indeed absolutely true, not that it's reasonable. Right. And I think what they are, in effect, stumbling over is this issue of whether or not a human being is omniscient. They obviously don't think we are as created by God, but they end up setting the bar such that, in effect, the only way a a human could ever say they know anything is by some omniscience. And, of course, they'll say, yes, right, that omniscience is God and his word. They go, well, now that's another circular argument, because if I've got to be hooked up with an omniscient source, God, in order to know anything at all, then how would I ever know in the first place that there was this God with whom I had to hook up in order to know things? It becomes this, again, a a vicious circular argument. So I think they worry too much about the fact that oftentimes when I'm in discussions with people and they try to challenge, well, are you how do you know that? How do you know this? Or is it possible that you're wrong here? And eventually I will just interrupt them and go, look, if you're asking me, am I omniscient? I'll say no. So in the sense in which a human is not omniscient, we would have to say the the human's knowledge is fallible in some principled sense, right? I mean, the only way to be absolutely certain about anything is just to be God. Well, none of us are that. I think the presuppositionalists make too much out of that, and they try to say, well, what you've come up with is just a probability of the truth of Christianity, and they try to disparage that like, well, but the Bible talks about how we can be certain, you know, no without a doubt, and these things that go, you're confusing the distinction between the apologetics and the philosophy of an issue, the philosophical issue of knowing, versus the experience, the, the spiritual experience we have when we come to faith in Christ, and that sense of knowing. It's like knowing that your spouse loves you. He's like, well, okay, there's a difference between how I know that my spouse loves me and how I know that there's going to be an eclipse on some day in the future because of the calculations. Those are kind of two different senses of the word know, and I think sometimes a presuppositionalist confuses those two. Yeah, why is it valid to say we can be reasonably sure of the resurrection? We can be reasonably sure that God exists. Uh, Some people might get a little uncomfortable by saying, well, Could it be you're saying maybe we're wrong? I mean, why is that uh, reasonable to say or a good thing to say? Yes. So I I think it's a good thing to say uh, as a practical matter when we are engaging the unbeliever by exhibiting a a certain amount of humility about our knowing faculties. If we come across where I, I know I'm right and I have absolutely no doubt and there's no possible way, well, of course, you hear that from a lot of cult members who actually maybe even killed themselves like the Heaven's Gate people. They were absolutely certain that when the Hellbop comet came, they'd drink the poison, they'd fly up to this UFO and go to the level beyond human. They were absolutely certain about that. So that ought to be a lesson to all of us go, look, any human can think they're certain and still be wrong. Well, if we look at that and go, so I think a more honest way to acknowledge it is, depending on the issue we're talking about, I might admit it's possible that I'm I'm wrong about that. Now, that sounds more extreme than I would even mean it. I go, sometimes people have asked when in debate, the Christian will ask during the Q&A, they'll ask the atheist, well, what would be enough evidence or what would you count as evidence for God? 
I started thinking, well, what am I going to do if somebody says, what would you count as evidence against God, for example, for debating God? I said, basically, if I could be convinced that the laws of logic do not apply to reality, then I think I would probably uh, maybe retire my confidence that God exists. Now, that may sound like I'm cheating, because how could you possibly prove the laws of logic don't apply to reality without using the laws of logic to do that, right? But what I meant by that is I'm as certain about the existence and attributes of God and the truth of Christianity as I think a human can be, but at the same time admit I'm not omniscient. So if by not being omniscient means I'm, I quote, could be wrong, then I'll admit I quote, could be wrong. run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcast, like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucker. 